0: Today's sermon text is 1st Samuel 18 through 19. I'll be reading a portion of that text from 1st Samuel 18 1 through 9. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 241. Hear the word of the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Good morning. Let me pray for us as we dive into God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your holy, inspired, perfect Word, would you lift up Christ in our sight? Even in the words we heard read earlier, would you make Him increase and us decrease? And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, this week I did something for a sermon introduction that I um, have not done before and that I really kind of regret doing. Uh, I don't know if you're in the in the back, you may not see this, but up front, this is This is Marmite. Uh, Marmite, it says on the front, is yeast extract. I don't know exactly what that is, but Marmite is uh, a British food. You can go buy it at Publix. I would not recommend it, but you can go buy it at Publix. And uh, Marmite has this really divisive effect on people, so much so that that they kind of adopted this. They they finally one day owned that we're a divisive food stuffs. And so the official advertising slogan of Marmite is now, Marmite, love it or hate it. And I am firmly on team hate it. So if you like Marmite, you can come have my jar after church. And this morning in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, we, we come to a text that actually evokes the same kind of response in people. There's a lot of things that do divide people. You pick a subject, a topic, a person, and you have people who can say, I love this person, I hate this person. But instead of a yeast-based food spread or a political figure in our day, we find in the text today that the person who has this kind of divisive effect is God's anointed king, David. So here, here's the main point, if you want to think about these couple of chapters taken together, the main point of this text. You will either love or hate God's anointed king. You will either love or hate God's anointed king, but know that those who hate him and who set themselves against him will fail and will fall. We're going to walk through the text this morning kind of looking at both halves of that so that you have, you will love or hate him, and those who set themselves against him will fail. And we'll just kind of divide the text and our time through those two main points this morning. And my prayer for us this week, uh, just to adopt some words from Psalm 2 that we'll read near the close of our sermon. I, I want us to be wise and to be warned. I, I'm praying that we would submit to King Jesus, that we would love him instead of fighting against him. Now, last week, if you were here, we looked at a couple of stories where David trusted in God's faithfulness. And he was set forward as someone who God used to deliver first King Saul and then to deliver all of Israel from their enemies. And it ends with this great battle. All of chapter 17, the chapter right before this, is about David and Goliath. And the hero of the story is not just David because he's so brave and has just such great weapons. The hero of the story is the Lord. Remember, David even says such. The battle is the Lord's. What we see happening in in chapters 18 and 19, rather, pick up right after those events. In those first nine verses that you heard Tyler just read for us, you hit a fork in the road. This is where you get to the divisive nature of David and what's happening in him. And you're forced to ask, do I love him? Will I hate him? And and this comes out in a few uh, a contrast of characters. So this text is really trying to push us. It's telling you, live in right relation to God's anointed king. We want to live in right relation to God's anointed king. So these, these characters that come up and kind of show us the fork in the road, on the one hand, there's Jonathan, Saul's son who takes this one fork in the road. You see that in the first, uh, the first five verses of the text. There's kind of three things that stand out about Jonathan here. One, Jonathan loves David. Verses one and three, he is the first of several characters in the chapter. It says that he loves David. But if you, if you actually look down, It's not just Jonathan. If you have your Bible open, look down at chapter 18, verse 16. Towards the end of that verse. But all Israel and Judah loved David. Then just keep glancing down. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And then down to verse 22. All his, all of Saul's servants, love you. It's one of the dominant themes in the chapter. God's uh, people love David. Lots of people love David. But beyond that, Jonathan actually puts his love into action, we're told in verse 3, in that he makes a covenant with David. This covenant is not saying, is saying more than just like, I love you. We are good friends. We're best friends. It's making promises to work for one another for the rest of their lives. Uh, you, we're, we're actually kind of familiar with these kinds of promises. If you join the military, you don't just say, I love my country. You're promising to do things for your country or, or on my wedding day, Laura and I made vows to one another and we, those vows were not, I love you so much and you're beautiful, but I promise to do this Forever. And this covenant will bind David and Jonathan. We'll see it again next week in chapter 20 and further out. uh, They will bind Jonathan and David throughout the rest of their lives and even beyond one of their deaths. And then there is this one more important kind of act of love that we see Jonathan taking in verse 4. In verse 4, we're told that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor. And even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, you can read that. And if uh, I grew up with a sister who, you know, we didn't trade clothes, but she had friends who she was like, that's a cute outfit. And they think your outfit's cute. And you kind of trade and you just find outfits that you trade among people. That's not what's happening here. This is not baseball cards or Pokemon cards or outfits among girls who just say, I like that robe. Can I borrow it? Now, this robe is a royal robe. This is a robe that signifies to others that this is not just some guy, but he's the heir. The same thing for uh, for all the armor, the sword, the bow, the belt, all of that. If you saw that guy walking down the street with that stuff, you'd be like, that guy is the heir. He's the one who's going to inherit the kingdom. And Jonathan, in taking that off and giving it to David, is showing, at least foreshadowing, but I think even more Submitting himself to what he sees as what God is doing in David's life. He's saying that, I don't know that I'm the next king, even though my father is, but I want, I think you are the heir apparent, the Lord's anointed David. So Jonathan, Jonathan is an exemplar. He loves, he commits to, he submits to David, to the Lord's anointed. And then on the other hand, you have Saul. Saul, the man who's going to take the other fork in the road. You get the story where the army is coming home from striking down the Philistine. Uh, All the women of Israel, they come out and sing. It's kind of like what happens in the book of Exodus after the the Egyptians are defeated. All the women are are coming and they're singing and they have this new ditty that they've written. And it's going around Israel. Uh, I think the kids say it this way. This song slaps. So they... Everybody under, like, 23 just laughed, so I had to test that one with some friends. This one just is a a popular song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul does not like that comparison. He says, we're told, that he eyes David from that day on. Everybody else hears about this, and they're rejoicing. David is delivering us. He is doing good for us. But Saul eyes David. And this kind of sideways glance at David, that's envy, it'll actually grow into full-on animosity. Just look down in verse 29. By, By the end of this chapter, the very last sentence of verse 29, Saul was David's enemy continually. The, the elevation of David really just strikes at Saul's pride. And the rest of the book, the rest of this book, not just this morning, but throughout all the way to chapter 31, is going to show us how the green-eyed monster of envy, of jealousy, ultimately turns Saul into a monster himself. Now this is maybe not the main point of this passage, but it is one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament, at least, that I can think of, of the danger of envy. So I want to pause here and just apply this and tell you, beware, friends. Beware the deadly poison of envy. Kids, if you're, envy may be a word that you're not aware of. this is a, a There's a definition here on your note sheet if you just want to think, what, what is envy? Envy is a feeling of unhappiness at the blessing and fortune of others. Something good happens to a friend, and instead of feeling happy about that good thing, you feel angry, mad, sad. And that may seem like pretty normal. Uh, it's what Jerry Bridges, he's got this book called uh, Respectable Sins. Envy's kind of a respectable sin. It's not something like murder. It's not something that you're going to go to prison for. It's something that lots of people probably struggle with. And because of that, when we see it, we don't recoil at envy. We just kind of say, it's envy, so what? I think though that, this is from commentator Tim Chester, he puts this well, envy is the mother of malice and envy ultimately gives birth to murder. That's what we see happen in this story. And if you want to kind of diagnose your own heart, if you want to think about not just what is envy, but am I envious? Has it crept into my bloodstream? Here's maybe the question I'd ask you. How do I, how do you respond to the blessing and success of others? How do you respond to the blessing and success of others? The Bible actually kind of gives us some commands on how we should respond. So I don't think this is in your notes, but if you want to write down Romans twelve fifteen, Romans twelve fifteen, tells us that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We, even as a church, make that part of our church covenant, our promises to one another. And envy just takes that and turns it on its head. Right? Envy looks at others who are rejoicing, and instead of saying, I want to rejoice with them, it weeps that they're rejoicing. And NBC's the downfall of those near you and maybe claps its hands and celebrates that. Kids, when one of your friends or maybe a sibling receives some good thing, some blessing, maybe they make the team or they get an award at school or they've made a new friend who they are close with, are you happy for them? Or are you angry that they received something and you didn't? Moms, are how do you react when you're at the play date and you start talking about how your kids are where they are kind of socially or in their grades or what they're doing? Uh, There's this episode of a TV show called Bluey where moms are at a play date and one of them is uh, just feels so envious because the other kids are walking before her kid. Like she goes home frustrated by that. Do you feel frustration and grumble about the success maybe of other people's children or grandchildren? Men, when you are at work and you see uh, not somebody who's like way out in front of you, but like your good friend get a promotion that you didn't get, like are you grinding your teeth when you go to shake his hand and say congratulations and then looking for a way to undermine him later? Or can you actually rejoice with one who's rejoicing? And this doesn't even just apply to you individually. This is something that church, if there is a faithful gospel preaching church just down the road with more people and bigger budgets and newer buildings, should we look at them and say, I can't believe they're missing out on what's here? Or do we thank God that His church, God's church, is growing and expanding, even if this church may not. Now, none of that is to say that a desire for blessing is bad. It's not bad to desire God's blessing, but this kind of competitiveness that refuses to acknowledge and give thanks for God blessing others, friends, that's, that's not a little thing to just trifle with. That is envy creeping in to your heart and to mine. And this story will tell us that it can kill us. Ultimately, envy sets itself up, not just against its neighbor. right? In this story, Saul is against Jonathan, but ultimately, Saul is setting himself up against God himself. And this is what envy does. Think about uh, what we're told in James 1. James 1.17 says that every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. And so if God has given a good gift to your friend, your sibling, this church over here, you complaining about that good gift is complaining about God's providence. It's complaining to God and to others and ultimately judging God that he should not have given it to them but should have given it to you. That's where Saul finds himself. His eyes and eventually his heart is set against the Lord's anointed and ultimately against the Lord himself. Friends, envy here is not just a bad habit. It is a deadly poison to be avoided and fought at all costs. Instead of envying and eventually giving in to hatred, what does this text call us to do? This text calls us to, like Jonathan, cling to God's anointed. Cling to King Jesus. Cling to his king. Friends, in the same way that Jonathan loves David and he sees what he's done and his affections that stir up for him, when we back out and even thinking about last week and saying that, David conquering Goliath points us to the better victory of Christ over sin and death and hell when we see that our response should be to give up our petty little kingdoms to enjoy his heavenly one we should respond just as David does we say you King Jesus have defeated a foe that we were utterly powerless to defeat we could not and so our affections are stirred for him. We respond in love. But not only love, we submit to him. Just as Jonathan is saying, I kind of I give up my future, my heir, all the things that are coming to me, my dreams, all the things my dad has told me about, is what it's like to serve as king, I give those up. I submit that to King Jesus. This is what the Bible calls us to do when it's telling us to repent and believe. That's what repentance is. Letting go of sin, of all the little things that we have said. This is my dream, and I will not give it up. This is my right. And we're turning it to him. We submit our lives to his. That's what we read about John the Baptist, even in John 3:30. He must increase. And I must decrease. And lastly, those who cling to Christ, this is good news. Those who cling to Christ are ultimately said to be in covenant with Christ as well. Now, the covenant that we read with David and Jonathan, it's going to go both ways. And it's going to serve both people uh, over the next several chapters and even beyond Jonathan's life. Friend, the covenant that we have with King Jesus is so, so graciously one-sided. We have committed our lives. Those who are in Christ, you have said, I want to follow. I want to give my life to and for you, Christ. But we just confess with Corey that oftentimes we fail, that we break those oaths. And the covenant that Jesus holds with us is one of grace. He, friends, is so unlike us. And he keeps every promise every good thing we get from him is undeserved blessing to his people that we grasp in faith and now friend if if you are here with us today i'm glad if you're a visitor here with us we are uh, we're thankful that you've come to worship with us we tell you you're welcome here any sunday and would encourage you the best place to be on a on a sunday is surrounded by god's people whether it's here or at another faithful gospel preaching church We do want to be clear that you, friend, are at a fork in the road. Just as the readers of this text the first time, you see this before you and there is a choice to be made. Will you fight for a kingdom of your own? One that may last, I don't know, at most 80 years? 90 years? Be small and say, I want my kingdom to come to pass? are you willing, like Jonathan, to submit your life to love Christ, the anointed King, the one who has given himself in love for you, who has conquered sin and death and hell that you could not? Friends, this text, and we, along with it, we would encourage you, cling to Jesus. And if if you have questions about that, if you want to know what that looks like, I would love to talk to you after church about that. You, If you came here with a friend, if you were invited with a friend, just ask them after service, can we go grab lunch or can I talk, grab coffee or lunch later this week? I want to know what it's like to walk with this king down that fork instead of this other one. Cling to the anointed king, Jesus. Now, if, if those first few voices, verses, these first nine verses or so, what it's doing, it is trying to push upon you Here's the way you can go this way or that way. And the rest of this text from verse 10 all the way through chapter 19 is trying over and over and over and over again to persuade you that one of these ways is wise and right. And one of these ways is foolish. We see this in the rest of 18 and 19 as the Lord delivers his anointed king. Uh, these, so, I, I bought Marmite and it was awful. I did a little more sermon research just to make sure at least my kids would understand this reference. So, have you ever seen a Wiley Coyote cartoon? Rose has, good. One person, wonderful. If you've ever seen a Looney Tunes, Stan has two people, great. If you've ever seen a, a Looney Tunes, this is what I grew up watching as a kid, uh, there's this character named Wiley Coyote. And his sole existence in life is to try to catch and eat Roadrunner. And he is going to, he makes some just absurdly complex plans, and he always fails. And that's what the rest of this chapter reads like. It reads like Saul trying to be creative and coming up with ways to catch David. And throughout them all, over and over and over, David is saved. And oftentimes the plan backfires even on Saul. We'll just look at this. We'll read a fair amount of this text. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to keep them open. Uh, But we'll start with kind of the the first, the most direct attack that he makes. So Saul just tries to kill David by his own hand, but David evades him. Look at verse 10 of chapter 18. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Uh, that same kind of story happens again in the next chapter, in chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. Saul just says, I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to strike him with a spear. And David gets away. But So the next plan is for Saul to try a more indirect tactic. Okay, So throwing a spear didn't work. Now he says, I'm just going to send David out as a commander of some troops. And I don't have to kill him. I'm just going to let the Philistines take care of that. But instead what happens is that David ends up killing the Philistines and his reputation grows. So look at verse 14 of chapter 18. David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. That's a key phrase throughout the rest of the chapter as well. The Lord is with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him. Saul wants to have David killed. Instead, this just serves to make all of Israel love him more. But Saul, instead of giving up on that plan, he kind of doubles down on it in the next couple of stories. He, he tells David, if you go fight battles for me against these Philistines, then I'll give you my eldest daughter Merab in, in uh, marriage. You can become my son-in-law. Uh, David gives this humble response, and ultimately Saul just kind of breaks that promise to him. But in verse 20, uh, we're told later that Michael, Saul's second daughter, actually really loves David. And Saul, in hearing that, hears a plan formulating. Look at verse 21. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son in law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed Two hundred of the Philistines and David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. This is the backfire. Saul's plan of saying, I'm going to eliminate this guy, actually turns out now he has, David has, access to the throne. He's the king's son-in-law. That's exactly what Saul doesn't want to happen. And more than that, Saul is growing in fear, but with every victory that David gets, his reputation among Israel just grows so that people love him more and more. So by the time we get to chapter 19, Saul's done with kind of the indirect stuff. Okay, he, he was in this fit of madness and hurled a spear at David. And that could maybe be thought of as, well, he, he was just, he was crazy. He's had this pretty thin veneer of, I'm going to get the Philistines to kill them. But, you know, he could still say, well, I didn't try to kill him. But in verse 1 of chapter 19, Saul it says this, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. He is out in the open now with other people. And David will be delivered again, though within Saul's own household. Saul's son, Jonathan, is the one who now steps in and intercedes for his friend. Look at verse 4 of chapter 19. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Now That's a short-lived peace. Saul, again, in a jealous rage, has his spear, hurls it at David. David is the dodgeball champion of Israel, and he evades it again. And this time, Saul thinks he's got David trapped at home. David flees the court and goes to his house. But again, another member of Saul's family is going to come to the rescue. Look at verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And then taking a page from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Michael tricks Saul in his minions. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And then Michael, to save herself, answers Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Jonathan and Michael, you've got like Saul's inner ring of people. These are his own children, though. And they are more loyal to David, the anointed king, than to their deranged father. They are rightly more loyal to David. Remember that uh, when Saul kind of hatched this plan of giving Michael to David, he, he says, maybe Michael will be a snare to David. And it turns out that Michael is a means of salvation for David. It backfires again on Saul. The Lord knows how to protect his anointed. Now there's one last story of divine deliverance. And all of those previous stories. Each one of them you could say like. Thank good that that's a good coincidence. Like God put people in the right place. To save. David. Which is not coincidence. We would call that providence. But you could just say. This is just acting by people. Natural means that this has happened. But. We are going to get the lesson. Here's kind of where you get the lesson. Full force. God is protecting his anointed. Not David's dexterity. It's not that Jonathan is really good on debate team. It's not that Michael is really great at tricking people. It is that God himself all along has been showing, I will protect my anointed. And he demonstrates that clearly in this story in verse 18. Chapter 19, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. Okay, so Samuel the prophet and David go to live in the city. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, to arrest him. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then Saul says, you can't get something done, you got to do it yourself. He himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now all of these stories, we kind of run through them quickly because they come pretty quickly. And it's like a a flashing neon sign. Something that's just trying to get your attention as you're driving by in the story of 1 Samuel. And it's flashing one central point. God protects his anointed. Like Saul literally throws everything he can against David. And over and over again, nothing sticks. Friends, fighting against God, fighting against his people, his anointed, is ultimately foolish and it's futile. Now, how do these stories, that's that's great. David gets saved. Uh, you're not David. So how do these stories, what do they tell us 3,000 or so years after? How do they travel across time to speak to you and me? Uh, I want to think about two ways of applying and thinking about what we see and how we can take courage from these. And the first point here is that uh, Christian, Christian, don't be surprised when you're hated. Don't be surprised if what happens to you ends up being hatred more than love and acceptance. At, at this point in the story, David is like one of the most likable guys in the Bible. That's not going to be true for David forever. But right now, he's handsome. He's valiant. He plays a killer liar. And he has just defeated the greatest giant known to man. More than that, he's humble about it. But even though his actions are upright, his success is evident, he still has those who hate him. And this same truth applied a thousand years after David in the ministry of Jesus. And it applies 2,000 years after the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of his people today. The New Testament is filled with these kinds of wake-up calls. It does not want you to think that life as a Christian is just going to be easy. Look at John. Uh, This is from the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. Uh, or, or think about 1 Peter. We're walking through this book on Wednesday nights at midweek. You're welcome to come join us at those, and we'll walk through this in several weeks. Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's kind of normal for God's people. Now, brothers and sisters, our our lives and our proclamation of the gospel, David's life, what he is saying and doing, they're marked by graciousness and gentleness and kindness. And so should our lives. We're not going out intentionally provoking hatred. But as we call people, as we live your, you don't even have to use proclamation. We should, but your proclamation of the good news of King Jesus and even your life following that example there will be people who see that, we're told. The good promise is that people will see that and some will find that so stirring and attractive that they will in turn ask you maybe, what is different about you? How can I get that kind of life? That's true. But we're also told that there are others who will see that kind of life and who will be provoked even to hatred. To look on you and not say, I want that kind of life, but that life offends me. It is against me. There are some even who take up arms to protect their own kingdoms when they see your life and hear our proclamation. And the Bible is clear about this because it doesn't want you to be discouraged. To be forewarned is to be armed for when you do come against that. In fact, in the midst of opposition may be the place where you find God's presence most sweet. You can think about that maybe in your own lives, in times of trial where you say, you know, I was walking through this season and things were difficult and it was in that season where I felt that God was actually with me, caring for me, upholding me throughout this. Friends, that same thing is true. When you find yourself even hated for the name of Jesus, know that you have not been abandoned but that he is standing with you in the midst of it. Remember right in the middle of all of David's running, in 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 chapter 18, one of the key phrases is that the Lord was with David. His hatred, being hated by Saul, is not a sign that he's done something wrong. It's actually part of Saul reacting against the Lord being with him. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis, he puts it this way, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. That's God's good gift. So give every effort. We should rightly want to be persuasive and winsome, kind and gracious, live lives that are attractive to those who do not know Christ. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when that kind of life occasionally and maybe even often provokes people to hatred. But while we can expect the world's hatred, we also know that God knows how to protect his people. If you can expect opposition from the world, friends, you can expect support, love, carrying from the God we follow. For all of the creativity that Saul tries to show in this story, for all the ways and he thinks that he is cunning and trying to have David killed, God shows himself to be in control. You can't outmaneuver the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. It's a losing battle. God protects David in every trial. Uh, David even said this in our call to worship. God knows how to protect you, friend, in your trial. I do want to be careful here because I've already said this. You're not David. Okay, David is promised a kingdom that is not here yet. David, at this point in his life, has promises made by God that are out there in the future for him. So, like, his physical protection in this story is guaranteed because God does not break his promise. Now, and you, you friend, you probably, I don't think you have that kind of promise. David Burnett, in seven years you shall be governor of Alabama. That kind of thing isn't there from the Lord. I've not, you've not told me anything like that yet, at least. We don't have that kind of promise that David can look forward to and say, I know physically I will be well because God has promised this. So this isn't meant to be taken up as some blanket claim that God's people always escape the snares of their enemies. If just think about church history. Think about the pages of the New Testament and the many people who die at the hands of those who are against them. Think James. Think about the all, almost all of the apostles of Jesus who died martyrs' deaths. Think about the people even brothers and sisters around the world who we pray for on a weekly basis, for whom this is not a theoretical kind of question, but who actually feel this press on them daily. but we So we are not told that we won't lose a job or that we won't have a relationship severed or even that we won't die for Christ. We can't claim that. But again, i quote Davis here. I think this was helpful for me thinking in this. I can be confident that God will keep me Until whatever he has ordained for me to be or to do is accomplished. Now some would perhaps crave more, but that is no small comfort. I do not need to share David's experiences. It is enough to know David's God. And as long as the angel of Yahweh keeps pitching his camp around those who fear him and delivering them, I should be content. Friends, be comforted. God is sovereign. I can't promise you when he, when you will be delivered safely to the golden shore. Like that may be today and it may be 90 years from now. What I can promise is that God always delivers his people to that shore and he always helps them get there and he's always welcoming them as they cross. God knows how to deliver and how to protect his people. Friends, as, as we come to the son of David, Jesus Christ, what you find is something like Marmite. People love him and people hate him. We may want to claim that there's a middle ground, but in the end we're told that there is no middle ground, no place to say Jesus is a good man who I don't really want to love, but I really don't want to hate. Jesus himself in Matthew twelve thirty says, whoever is not with me is against me. In the end, friends, if it is impossible to stay neutral towards Christ, you will either love him or you will hate him. And it's sobering just thinking back to this passage. Think about the beginning and the end of this passage. In, in a weird way, this this passage is bracketed by people removing clothing. At the very beginning, there is Jonathan, Jonathan who recognizes that David is the. Humble king to come and who submits himself by giving his own royal robe to him. Who chooses to follow in covenant with this king. He loves God's anointed. And then at the end of the story, Saul has his royal robe removed from him. He does not choose to submit. He lies instead exposed on the streets because he has hated God's anointed. It's as if the passage is telling us you will humble yourself before God. And you can do that today. You can choose to humble yourself before him or you will one day be humbled by God. Friends, you have, we all have a choice to make. And I'll close us with this warning from Psalm chapter 2. This is a promise for those who have sided with him and a warning to those who would fight against the king Lord, we thank you that you show that you have made Jesus the king of all the earth. We thank you that even in this, these couple of chapters, you show us that you are more creative than sin and death and Satan could ever be, that you know perfectly how to deliver your people. And we pray, God, that you would help us, that you would help us to cling to Christ, And Lord, even this week, if we feel opposition press, whether that is at work or at school or among our own family, we pray that you would guard us, guard your people, and help us to know that you can protect us safely to glory. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.